Our passage today, John 12, 31, speaks of the ruler of this world being cast out. One commentator on the Gospel of John, Herman Ritterboss, notes that it is difficult to picture in spatial terms the place of Satan before and after the glorification of the Son of Man. And there is legitimate doubt whether cast out consistently requires such a spatial conception. In other words, what Ritterboss is saying is that we shouldn't picture Satan in one physical location before the cross and then in another physical location after the cross because he had been cast out of where he had previously been because of Jesus' work. Rather, the idea here is that Satan is rejected from being the ruler of the world any longer as a result of the crucifixion. Jesus says in John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, that is, whoever comes to him by faith, which is not a physical coming, is it? We don't physically go to Jesus when we come to faith in him. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The sense of it there is, whoever puts his faith in me. I'm not going to reject him. That's what cast out means in John 6, 37. It means reject. And that's the way the word is used here. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. It means now will the ruler of this world be rejected. But let's back up. Satan is the one being referred to as the ruler of this world. He's not explicitly identified here. It doesn't say, now will the ruler of this world, that is Satan, be cast out. It doesn't say that explicitly. And he's not identified explicitly elsewhere where he's called similar things in scripture. But we know it is him because of the context of the various usages. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, someone is called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Well, who else would that be but Satan? Or 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls someone the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, again, who else would that be but Satan? And in John's Gospel, a little bit later on, in chapter 14, in verse 30, Jesus says to his disciples, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me. Well, who else would it be that is going to come for Jesus so that he no longer talks to his disciples? but has to go and do something that the Father commanded him. Well, obviously, again, it's Satan coming to arrest Jesus and crucify him by means of Judas and the Sanhedrin and the complicit Roman powers. The context makes it clear in all these cases that Satan is the referent. Now, though Satan is called in various places in Scripture the ruler of this world, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, whatever... It should be noted that Satan is nowhere in the Bible given dominion or rule.
rulership over this world. God nowhere appoints Satan. God nowhere institutes him as the ruler of this world. Satan was never then the de jure ruler of this world. De jure simply means by law or on paper or officially. Satan was never the de jure ruler of this world. But Satan was and is still to some extent the de facto ruler of this world. De facto simply means in fact, in reality, in practice. Think of a hostage situation in which a villain takes over a building by force and rules everyone inside. So let's imagine a, a bank. Who is the de jure ruler of the bank? Well, it would be, I guess, the manager or whatever his title would be of that bank. There's someone there who is responsible for giving orders and deciding what happens and what doesn't happen at the bank. He's the de jure ruler. But someone comes in or a group of people come in with guns and take over. So someone secretly pulls out their phone and phones the police and says, hey, someone has came and taken over the bank. The police are not going to say, well, they're, they're in charge. It's their bank. So we can't do anything about it. You know, their, their, their rulership has changed. So tough luck. There, there would be a recognition that there is a de jure ruler, which is the manager of the bank. But then there are the de facto rulers of the bank, which is the guys with guns. They have no official claim. The policy hasn't changed so that now they're legitimately in charge. They are not the de jure rulers of the bank, but they are the de facto rulers of the bank because they have guns. This is analogous to Satan's rulership over this world. He was never appointed as the ruler. There was never a policy instituted whereby God endorsed Satan's dominion over this world and said, yeah, he's now rightfully, legitimately in charge. Submit to Satan because I've appointed him as ruler of this world. He is my servant to rule over this world on my behalf. That never happened. Satan is not the de jure ruler of this world and never has been. But he holds the gun, so to speak. So, he was, and to some extent still is, the de facto ruler of this world. In reality, in practice, he was in charge and is to some extent still in charge of this world. It has been this way ever since Adam's fall into sin. Who did God appoint to be the de jure ruler of this world? Adam, Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, have dominion, Adam, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam was to act as God's vice regent over this world. When the serpent came to tempt Eve then, 
What should Adam have done? He should have crushed the serpent's head. When the bank robbers came through the door with guns, Adam didn't punch them or tackle them. Adam went and cowered in a corner and let them take over. Adam functionally subjected himself to the snake. Adam allowed the snake to take over. Like the snake charmers charm serpents and get the serpents to do their will, but in reverse, the serpent charmed Adam, so to speak, and got Adam to do his will. And ever since then, mankind has been charmed by the serpent. Satan has been influencing mankind cunningly and subtly to do his will and to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And we are like a band of filthy and perverse pirates who are happy and eager to be led by our captain into ports of fleshly pleasure. We are complicit in Satan's rulership over us. We are content with Satan's dominion over this fallen world. We are complicit in Satan's usurpation of dominion over this world. He doesn't have rightful power, he has usurped it. But we don't care. We're fine with it. We're complicit in Satan's usurpation of rulership over this world. Until one day we're not. When God gives a man the new birth, He wakes him up from a drunken stupor, as it were, and gives him eyes to see and ears to hear just what a wicked mess this world is in. And we see now the captain of the ship no longer as a suave, swashbuckling hero of a man, but as a cold-hearted, self-centered user and abuser of men. And we want off the ship. We want to mutiny. We want out of life under Satan's charge. The problem, though, is that even though we now want to be free, and though we now want the world to be free, we find that we can't overpower Satan ourselves. Satan stands as something of a Goliath over this world, taunting those who resent his rulership to come out and face him. But we are like the armies of Israel, Unable to do anything about it. Unable to send a man forth from our midst to go and battle with him. Even we who have been born again, woken up from our drunken stupor, so to speak. Even we try to live holy lives to no longer do the will of the prince of the power of the air, of the God of this world. But what do we find? Time and time again, we're still doing what he wants us to do and rebelling against God. We are personally unable to free ourselves from his influence over us. We can't even free ourselves from Satan's influence, much less the world. How are we going to fix the whole world when we can't even fix ourselves? 
You might be wondering why we sang earlier in the service, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, on March 7th. It is because the feeling of the writer is a feeling common to us all at times. In despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong. It mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. We look inside at our own struggles and find ourselves unable to free ourselves from our own sin. And we look around us and we see the prevalence of evil everywhere. In that same song, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, he speaks of the belfries of Christendom ringing all day long in unbroken song on a Christmas Day. Meaning that the bells of churches in various time zones in what we would call Christendom are ringing perpetually throughout Christmas Day. That as one service ends in one time zone, another is ringing in another time zone. And they flow in unbroken song. There was a time when vast swaths of this world were in what we would call Christendom. Doesn't mean everyone in it was Christians, but there was such a thing as Christendom, where Christianity was privileged and respected and at least nominally adhered to by the vast majority of persons in large swaths of the world. Throughout most of Western civilization, we have lived in Christendom for the last few hundred years. But even now, Christendom itself seems to be crumbling as our Western culture becomes increasingly secular. It seems that Satan's power is unassailable as it encroaches little by little over our lands. Can we ever work together to make Barbados again something of the so-called Christian nation that it once was? Now, as a point of clarification, I know full well Barbados was never fully and truly a Christian nation. Nor can any nation truly and fully be. But I think you know what I mean. I'm using common language, common parlance. What I mean is, can the tide of secularism ever be turned back? Even the thought of reversing course in our small island nation alone seems unlikely. Let alone all of Western civilization, North America and Europe and all of the countries and regions so affected by the goings-on there. In despair, then, as we see this secularism encroaching, so often we bow our heads as Goliath taunts that he is winning the war and that no one can overthrow him. Satan is the one being referred to as the ruler of this world here in John 12, and he is like a Goliath. But we have in this passage not only a Goliath, but a David. Jesus tells us in this passage 
that he is going to cast out the ruler of this world. Luke 2, verses 8 to 14. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace. Goodwill toward men. The next stanza of I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. This is what Jesus came to do. He came as the second Adam to crush the serpent's head. He came as the second David to slay the Goliath that the first David never could have. Jesus came to establish peace on earth. Jesus came to cast out the ruler of this world. God is putting all things under Christ's feet. And it began with the cross. John 12, 31. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now being at the time of his death. This is Jesus' subject here in John 12, 20 to 36. Now, as I am lifted up, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus comes to Golgotha like a David to do battle with Goliath. His sling and stone, unlikely weapons. His sling and stone is a cross. And with it, he fights against the ruler of this world. Satan is sure, as Goliath was sure, that he will give Christ's flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. But Christ Jesus, like David, wins an unlikely victory. Jesus absorbs the wrath of God at the cross, making atonement for a multitude so large that no one can number, who once were under Satan's tyranny. He brings these many sons to glory. He transfers them from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His Son. After three days, Jesus rises from the grave never to die again, and shortly thereafter ascends to the Father's right hand. Whereas 1 Corinthians 15-25 says, He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. Jesus is the de jure ruler of the world now. 
God has always been sovereign, omnipotent over every molecule of the universe. There's never been an exception to that. There's never been a period where that has not been the case. But there has always been a vice regency on earth. First given to Adam, but then, then lost, forfeited as he fell into sin and Satan stepped into the void, into the vacuum. But Christ Jesus has now been appointed as the de jure ruler of this world, the vice regent, the second Adam, who would do what the first Adam failed to do and crush the serpent's head. The second David, who has struck a death blow to Goliath. Jesus has bound the strong man, the scripture tells us, and is plundering his house. Yes, as Hebrews acknowledges, it is true that we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And there are short-term trends of increased rebellion toward Jesus in times and in places throughout human history. But as the de jure ruler of this world, as he appointed and set up as the vice regent of the Godhead in this world, Jesus is also taking more and more de facto sway and influence in this world over the long term. Jesus is actually becoming, in fact, in reality, increasingly the ruler in this world that he has been appointed to be. Psalm 2 gives us human history in a nutshell. We read it at the beginning of this service. The nation's rage, the people's plot, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. But he who sits in the heavens laughs and says, I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill. Before the cross, Satan had found no man who could resist him personally, nor neutralize his power over others. Even David, who killed Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, finds himself a few chapters later on a rooftop doing exactly what the prince of the power of the air would have him do. Lusting after another man's wife. And he takes her to himself and commits adultery with her and later murders her husband. Even David, who killed the earthly Goliath, could not slay this spiritual Goliath. David could not resist Satan personally, but succumbed to his influence deferred to his rulership. And so, though David killed this earthly Goliath, this spiritual Goliath continued to boast. And we couldn't send anyone forth who could resist him personally until he met a man from Galilee. And Jesus resisted in the wilderness personally his temptations and all 33 years of Jesus' earthly life he resisted Satan personally 
And not only did he resist him personally, but he was able to neutralize his power over others by giving them the new birth, by undertaking their sanctification that they will not any longer be under the dominion of Satan, but will gradually be made more and more like himself. He will do for them what they could not do for themselves. Paul asks at the end of Romans 7, Who will rescue me from this body of death? In other words, who will save me from this Goliath? I can't face him alone. I can't resist him personally. I can't do it for me, let alone do it for you. Who will rescue me from this body of death? <coughs> who will rescue us? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Someone has come who has resisted Satan personally and who is able to neutralize his power not only over himself but over us. After the cross, Satan is like a wriggling serpent with a crushed in skull. You know what would happen if you took a shovel and crushed a serpent's head or took a boot? It wouldn't stop moving that very second, instantaneously. He would wiggle around until he was truly brain dead and all of his nerves had stopped twitching. That's what Satan is like now, you understand? Christ Jesus at the cross dealt him a death blow. And yes, he wriggles around now, but it's just a matter of time. Henceforth, Satan no longer has the power and sway that he once had over the nations. He has been definitively and decisively rejected and cast out, as John 12, 31 says. To Jesus, the prophet Daniel tells us in chapter 7 and verse 14, to Jesus was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Earlier in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had a vision of kings who were to come. And Daniel interprets it and says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these other kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Again, Psalm 2. The servant of the Lord says, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus has been given rulership, dominion, de jure lordship over this earth. And Jesus has been given the power to subject all of the nations to himself and to subsume all of their kingdoms under the lordship of his kingdom, putting an end to their sway as he takes over. 
Jesus has decisively, though not entirely, displaced Satan as the ruler of this world. Which is why we can simultaneously say that Jesus is reigning at the Father's right hand, putting his enemies under his feet, and still that Satan is the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Jesus has been given de jure authority and is presently displacing Satan incrementally as the de facto ruler of this world and will continue to do so until all his enemies are under his feet. His kingdom, set up by God, shall never be destroyed. To the contrary, it will destroy every other kingdom. In the end, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will be the only kingdom left. Every other kingdom rises and falls. Every other civilization rises and falls. But Christ's kingdom will continue to grow and to grow and to grow until it fills the whole earth. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead. Nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to man. Isn't that what the angels said at his birth? Isn't that then what God has promised? Then it shall come to pass. We have only to wait long enough. Many criticize this perspective on history, saying something like this. How can you believe that Jesus is winning the war for this world? Look around you. Society is becoming more secular and God-hating. People are not thinking clearly, but are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. The gospel is not gaining ground. No, true Christians are becoming fewer and further between. Things will get worse and worse until Jesus returns. My friends, there are at least two errors to avoid on this subject. First, we ought not to take our theology from the newspaper. That is the goings-on around us, but rather from the Bible. If God has said that the strong man is bound and that his house is being plundered, then we should believe it. If God has said that Jesus will reign at the Father's right hand until he has put all his enemies under his feet, in other words, he's not going to descend from there until all his enemies are under his feet, then we should believe it. However, if for the sake of argument you want to still look at newspapers and judge Jesus' success by them, then let's go all the way back in the archives, so to speak, to the Jerusalem Gazette, Volume 1, issued in A.D. 33, where we read this news story of a small band of peasants with a commission to disciple the nations. And then let us read all of the newspapers since, so to speak, and see that by the power of the word 
the Spirit, billions have come to know Christ Jesus, saving Him since. We will see, if we look at enough newspapers, that Christ's kingdom is exponentially growing. And you'll be forced to admit that given a long enough period of observation, Christ is indisputably winning the war for this world. Which brings us to the second error that we ought to avoid. We ought not to mistake the battle for the war. Remember what 2 Peter 3 and verse 8 says. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. God is playing the long game. He does not say that there will be no martyrs. That there will never be governments which ascend to power and try to stamp out his kingdom. He never says that none of his people will die. He doesn't say that they will never lose ground in pockets here and there. In fact, to the opposite He says that the end will not come until the appointed number of martyrs have been killed. Revelation 6, 11. He says that in this world you will have trouble. But he promises that overall, in the midst of all this trouble, in the midst of martyrdom, in the midst of the nations raging, Christ will build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. Some battles may be lost here and there, but Jesus will win the war. Jesus is winning the war. Christ is building His church, and the gates of hell are not prevailing. Jesus is ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand. God has set His King on Zion, His holy hill, and He will rule with a rod of iron and break, dash into pieces all of his enemies. His kingdom will fill the earth. The whole earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The ruler of this world has been cast out. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail. Take heart, Christian, and press on. Jesus shall reign. And not just ethereally and spiritually as the world goes to pot. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. In other words, Jesus is not just ruling out there somewhere spiritually while the world goes to pot. Jesus is ruling and reigning de jure over this world right now. And Jesus will increasingly extend his rule and reign de facto in this world under the sun. Increasingly putting all things under his feet. Building his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail until one day he descends from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and all things are made new. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys 